and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our hosts are Dr. Lisa Zhang and Dr. Adam Booth. They'll be speaking with Dr. Vikram Deshpande, Professor of Pathology at the Harvard Medical School and GI and Bone and Soft Tissue Pathologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Raul Gonzalez. He's an Associate Professor of Pathology at the Harvard Medical School and the GI Pathology Director at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Zhang is a graduate assistant in GI pathology at MGH. At the time they made this recording, Dr. Booth was a GI pathology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and is currently an assistant professor of pathology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Now here's your hosts, Dr. Zhang and Dr. Booth. Hello and welcome to PathPod and another episode of Beyond the Scope, where we chat with pathologists about their interests and activities outside of looking down the microscope. Today's episode is the second of its kind, where two current GI pathology fellows interview a pair of seasoned rock stars in the world of GI pathology. This episode has an extra special theme in that all four of us are joining live from beautiful Boston. I'm one of your hosts, Lisa Zhang. I'm currently a GI and cytopathology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital. You can follow me on Twitter at M-L-I-S-A-Z-H-A-N-G. My co-host is Dr. Adam Booth, currently the GI Fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and you can follow him at A-L-B-O-O-T-H-M-D. We are so excited today to have Dr. Vikram Deshpande and Dr. Raul Gonzalez on the show. So I'm going to start off by introducing Vikram. He is a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and is both a GI pathologist and a bone and soft tissue pathologist at MGH. You can follow him on Twitter at V-I-K underscore D-E-S-H-P-A-N-D-E-M-D. He is a fantastic teacher, researcher, sometimes comedian, and I've been so lucky to learn from him and have worked with him directly over the past few years. And this is Adam. I'd like to introduce Dr. Gonzalez. He is a associate professor at the Harvard Medical School, and he is the GI pathology director here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. You can find him on Twitter at Raul S. Gonzalez, MD. Uh, you've probably seen his prolific path tutorials. I think he was, he was one of the initial winners on his neuroendocrine tumors of the GI tract. You should check it out. And he, he just released one on lamins that is sure to get you up to date. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Gonzalez. Uh, and I've, it's been a real pleasure to work with you this year. So looking forward to having this uh, chat with, with all of you. So to start off, we would love to hear about what you guys do outside of pathology. What do you do for fun and relaxation? You know, for the longest time, I did almost nothing outside pathology. And you got to remember, I trained in India and then redid my residency in the U.S., then went back to India. So it was very chaotic, you know, going back and forth. But I must say, in the last 10 years, I've, I've found interesting things to do. So I went back to one of my original passions. I used to read a lot of fiction. So I've gone back to fiction a lot. Largely because I don't know how much you know, but my mom's an author in India. In fact, you can buy her on Amazon. Go buy those books. Her first name is Shashi. So, you know, I grew up in this home where there was a lot of reading. There was a lot of books and there was a lot of people talking about literature. So I've gone back to that. And so that's been that's been a lot of fun going back to reading. You know, I read everything from John Grisham to Charles Dickens to biographies of uh, Winston Churchill. Just amazing life that man led. 
what else do I do? I, I, I I've started to exercise a lot after a health crisis. I've become a great exerciser. So I ride my bike. I ride frequently to work. I've discovered running. I've discovered yoga. Yoga is actually amazing. I, I, among all of the things I've done, I think yoga is the most fun thing I've ever done. You look at these people sort of stretching their legs and hands and up dog and down dog. You might tell yourself, what, what in the world are they doing? But it's, it works on the mind as well as the body. And it's really true. And I simply never believed it until I started doing it. And then I do these crazy things like competing or rather getting into classes where almost 90% of people are a third of my age. Soul Cycle is the big one that I, when I joined. And initially, I could barely keep on the bike. I'm actually eventually keep up. My latest is, of course, Orange Theory. So Orange Theories, you know, I, I don't know whether you're familiar with splat points on Orange Theories. You get a splat point every time you, or you, they measure the amount of time your heart rate is above a certain number. I consistently have the lowest number of splat points in any class. But that doesn't stop me. I think it's just getting out there, you know, running on that treadmill. It's fun. So I do spend a lot more time outside work. And I think, I, I think very early on, I got my work-life balance totally wrong. You know, I showed up to work at 10 o'clock today. That's work-life balance. Vikram used to take trainees to the soul cycle. Oh, right. So oh, nice. a thing, right? So, uh, you know, I would, I would always find someone to accompany me. And so I remember I gave outs once, right? So we did these unknown conferences for residents and the one that got the most right went out to SoulCycle with me. <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but it, 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 it was a load, boatload of fun. I used to go with some of my colleagues as well. And it was like a social event and, you know, Mass General used to pay for these. I didn't know about this, but it was a cult, right? And <laughs> the instructors were special, weren't they? Um, well, now you're in the cult. <laughs> like well, I was the, the, the orange theory cult right now. Well, I must admit the three of you are doing a good job of reminding me how uh, unhealthy I am. I think. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, my, no, I'm guilty too. I've never gone. My my biggest health tip right now is cutting back on all the excess snacking I did at the beginning of the lockdown. So yeah. trying to rein that back in. I've been trying to get back to my like beginning residency weight so the beginning of the lockdown did not help me either but i'm kind of slowly chipping away at it so i have about obviously like about a month and a half left so we'll see if i can do it but i don't think i'll might not be able to get quite there i thought you were uh, looking pretty slim and trim you know oh thank you thank you glad somebody's <laughs> noticing you know all, all three of you look very <laughs> well that's part of the fellowship we, we track that we that's one of the, <laughs> the acgme metrics that we have to fill out I didn't see that on my evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Kind of going to your point about work-life balance, I remember on Twitter a couple months ago, someone posted something to the effect of, it's a cruel joke to go to someone who has to work 80 hours a week and ask what they do in their time away from work. <laughs> so true. And I also am guilty of maybe spending a little bit more time on work and work-related things than Perhaps is healthy, but I, I guess I enjoy what I do. So that's probably a good sign. In terms of things outside pathology, one thing that I really enjoy doing that has certainly not been possible during this lockdown has been going to a, a live music concerts. I'm particularly a fan of 80s new wave music, which puts me in a company of 
people much older than me and almost no one my age or my peers. But uh, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of bands that are still touring and still making music. And especially living in Boston, you know, the first couple of years I got here, I could go to shows uh, once or twice a month. There's always someone I enjoyed coming to town. I think I literally had a dozen concerts lined up and the tickets bought uh, when lockdown happened last year. And, you know, most of those got canceled or postponed. So I'm now looking forward to maybe going to shows in 2022. But that's certainly been fun. And I've occasionally traveled to go see some of these shows. There was one band that got back together after like a 40-year hiatus. And they're based in the UK. And they said, oh, fine, we'll do a show in New York City. So I had like a day at a CAP meeting a couple of years ago, flew from Chicago to New York City, saw that show, then flew back, took the red eye to work the next day. So <laughs> I've, I've done some crazy things like that. Um, Very dedicated. <laughs> yeah, I've got to have some fun in life. Another hobby I enjoy that actually has been affected, but only to some degree by the pandemic, is I'm actually a big fan of playing board games and card games. This is something I've probably, really, I'd done it since middle school, but I really picked it up in college where I found a group of people who would get together once a week and play all sorts of different games. And of course, everyone knows the classics like Monopoly, Scrabble, and Lots of people love those games, but there are still new games coming out every year, some of which are really popular, some of which are really interesting. And those are the games I kind of focus a bit more on. And my wife doesn't enjoy games to the same level that I do, but she has found some games that she and I both really enjoy playing, games that, you know, I'll win a game and she'll win a game. So we're evenly matched and we can have fun with it. So we've been able to certainly do that during the pandemic. There are meetup groups where you could go find people to play with. And I did that before the lockdown. Uh, Obviously can't do that now, but currently uh, a lot of these games are also available to play online. There are websites dedicated to playing them. So it's not quite the same. It's not as much fun as doing it, you know, in real life, so to speak. But I've been able to kind of keep that fire alive a little bit. Sounds great. So how did you get into pathology or interested in it? And then how did that kind of veer its way towards the gastrointestinal pathology specifically? Sure. So I came into medical school not really knowing anything about pathology, which I think is the norm for many people. It was the spring break of my second year of medical school. I was still having a little trouble figuring out exactly what I wanted to do. And my father is an internist. So he said, well, I can set you up uh, with some friends of mine. You can spend a day shadowing uh, with each of us and see what you think. So I spent a day with him at his internal medicine practice, you know, respect what he does. He's really dedicated to his work and he's good at it, but it uh, wasn't exactly for me. Spent a day with a radiologist. Again, just didn't click. Spent a day with a surgeon. No. And then the fourth day I sat down with a family friend who was a pathologist. And that was really the first day I even learned what pathology really was. Because again, the classes in medical school don't entirely, you know, necessarily make the mental connection. And then it was just, it was a great day. I really enjoyed looking at the slides. It really felt like sort of my kind of speed. I've always felt a little bit like a behind the scenes kind of person. So that's really where pathology first came onto my radar. So for third year medical school, I don't think I had elective time where I could do pathology, but I did it early fourth year, decided it's really what I wanted to do. And here I am. 
And as far as GI pathology specifically, I did my residency at Emory in Atlanta, which had a really strong group of GI pathologists while I was there and still does. And the enjoyment of GI pathology in that division really shone through and impressed a lot of us. In fact, my residency class was nine people and three of us did GI path. So that was where I first realized that GI path was what I wanted to do and um, stuck with it now. Sounds great. What about you, Vikram? It's interesting. I have a somewhat different story to tell. So the way I got into pathology is because in part, not, not that, that wouldn't be the whole story, in part because my father's a pathologist. His uncle was a pathologist in the 1930s and the 1930 you know, to 1950. My father trained in pathology in the 1960s. I have two other first cousins who are pathologists. And my wife is a pathologist. Of course, my, the wife came later. So it was clearly there and all around me. The other thing that happened is that I lived, uh, this is, of course, in India. We lived on a campus within a large neurosciences center. Right? So we lived with other kids who were sons of neurologists and neurosurgeons. And the, the pathology lab was just a walk away. So I would walk up there. And we would spend time in the lab and, you know, this was a neurosciences center. So there would be these slabs of brains right in front of you. And I mean, there was a summer where I must have been in sixth or seventh grade where I helped the technician put brains into these containers. I had no <laughs> idea what I was looking at. Apparently, they were glioblastomas or whatever. So there was certainly that influence. But I don't think that tells the whole story. You know, when I was in high school. I spent some time in a pathology lab, but even that's not the whole story. You know, after I went into medical school knowing that I wanted to be a pathologist. So this is sort of unusual. In fact, I think I decided I wanted to be a pathologist perhaps in seventh or eighth grade. So it was a very early decision, right? But then as I went through medical school, I didn't really like anything else. And perhaps it's because I'd already made up my mind. Perhaps it's because this is what I always wanted to do. And I wouldn't change a thing for the world, you know. I, I just enjoyed the diagnostic aspects of it. I must tell you that, you know, medical school in India is somewhat different from medical school here. It's a lot of rote reading and there's not a lot of exposure to pathology other than textbooks. But I mean, somehow I kept that interest alive. And to tell you the truth, I did try six months of internal medicine in India and they kept waking me up at night. And I thought, Literally, that, <laughs> <or> <laughs> I, I thought, I thought that's the worst thing you could do to a man. And then surgery was completely out because, you know, we do a year of internship and all I did was to hold a retractor. And if any one of you has held a retractor, you can never hold a retractor. Right. Try holding a retractor at 3 a.m. in the morning from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. And so it was a partly, you know, it was partly exclusion. But I really did enjoy pathology, the little that I saw in medical school. And clearly I had, you know, a dad who was obviously talking to me and I would spend time in the lab when I was in medical school. And so it was such an easy decision in the end. So you didn't become a neuropathologist, though. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing you enjoyed the family business. <laughs> so in India is pathology more well-known as a career to people, or is it just because you had family members? 
it is, in India, it's one of the, le- it, I, I suspect it's, it's very similar to here, right? Medical students are not really exposed to pathology, one, and it's not considered a top choice. So I remember telling one of my internal medicine attendings in internship that I plan to do pathology. And he said, why would you want to do a field like that, right? Because it was not a top choice. It was not something most people considered. I was the only person in my class who ended up in pathology. It's very similar to what goes on here. Over the decades, I think pathology has become a little more lucrative in terms of, you know, you can open your own practice and make a substantial buck. And because of that, I think pathology has become a little more popular but it's generally the very last thing a medical student considers as a profession. Sounds like it's kind of the same thing that people have been uh, struggling with years, the exposure in medical school. It sounds like even less there, though. I know here that it's one of our constant concerns and one of the uh, arguments that why people aren't aren't really going into it is because they don't really see what your day is actually like. Right. I don't think I could have, until I had actually done a rotation in pathology, said what my day would be like now or what it's like for for any of you. Yeah, I remember (laughs) at my med school, our pathology course was all virtual. So we were just looking at some scanned slides on the computer. And unless you actually chose to do an elective, you would never actually, I didn't even know that pathologists use microscopes. (laughs) (laughs) Vikram, how did you end up interested in GI pathology? So I had an advantage, right? So I did do three years of a residency in India. You know, interestingly enough, when I was in India, it was cytopathology, right? And and, in part, I chose cytopathology when I was in India is because the people I looked up to in India were cytopathologists, and one tends to drift into areas that one looks up to, right? I, I assume, Raul, that was part of your decision of getting into GI pathology. You're looking for mentors, And uh, there were two physicians there that were excellent. They clearly stood head and shoulders above everyone else there. And that's how I got into cytopathology. But when I came here, I sort of changed my mind. Interestingly enough, Lisa, I don't know whether you know, I did do a cytopathology fellowship. I have never done a GI pathology fellowship. I know. So (laughs) I never at any point of time had to make a decision as to what subspecialty I'm going to get into. I got into GI pathology, I'd say gradually, and the way I did it is I wrote a lot of papers. And every paper I wrote, I thought GI pathology was a little more interesting. And ultimately, when I was at Mass General, there was a need for GI pathologists. So it worked out really well. So it it fit perfectly into my academic career. And so I merged the, the clinical and the academic career in that fashion. I think more broadly, I think GI pathology is attractive and continues to be attractive, right? So there's not a lot of specialties where you have a lot of inflammatory diseases. A lot of other organs are largely neoplastic, at least the diagnostic aspects of the disease are largely neoplastic. I think GI pathology offers this entire range of inflammatory and neoplastic diseases. I think the other thing about it's fun about GI pathology, and this is, of course, all in retrospect, because I did not make a conscious decision at any point to do GI pathology, is the variety in GI pathology. So, for example, the inflammatory diseases of the pancreas have nothing to do with the inflammatory diseases of the liver. And I like the, the variety and therefore the challenges it offers. 
Thanks for sharing those experiences. I think that this is a good segue into mentorship and pathology because you've both mentioned that you developed interests in areas where you had found good mentors and that kind of helped shape your career as well. I wanted also to ask now that you're both pretty seasoned pathologists in your field, when did you make the transition from being primarily a mentee to being a mentor and how did that start? I can go first. And maybe it's just that I'm not, haven't been doing this quite long enough, but I don't know that there's, that you can ever really stop being a mentee. I definitely have people whom I consider my mentees or people whom I try to mentor and try to help as they begin their career. And there are certainly people who've been doing this longer than I have, or the same length of time as I have, or even who have been doing it for less time than me whom I look up to, whom I respect, and who have taught me a lot. And I consider them to be my mentors, whether or not they even envision it as a two-way relationship themselves. I would say it took me a couple of years to get to the point where I felt like I could reasonably mentor, you know, young pathologists. There's always someone younger than you, you know, even, you know, when you're a senior resident, you can be a mentor to a junior resident or things of that nature. But I do think a couple years into an attending was when I really felt like I could start talking to other junior attendings. But I definitely do not feel like I'm out of the mentee role. And hopefully I never will. So you're saying there's always more to learn and be taught, huh? Oh, there always is. there's always new stuff. You're always emailing me papers. And I'm like, I didn't see that paper. That's brand new. That's, That's just because you hadn't been on Twitter as fast as I was at that moment, probably. <laughs> I, I tell you, that is so true. I have learned more on Twitter because my only sources of, let, let me make a confession. My only sources of knowledge today are papers that I review. And Twitter. <laughs> it is really sad. Or papers, at least, my students email me, or somebody else might email me. Post. Congratulations on your paper, by the way, Lisa. That I saw y'all tweeted, oh, thank uh, you. yesterday. Uh, yes, you? a review from Vikram yeah. and I. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm looking forward. I downloaded it so I could read it after. Uh, now that my boards are done, so yeah. I can oh, learn Adam, things I, for I, fun. Adam, I read your paper on serrated polyps earlier this year. Ah, good. I hope you, I <laughs> hope you enjoyed it. The force, Adam put that together very well. It was really nice. Okay. I really liked the sort of historical aspects of it because I think that was never really quite clear to me. So it really put the terminology in perspective. Yeah, you know, you go back, like we mentioned medical school. I remember in medical school for GI polyps, just hearing about hyperplastic polyps and then tubular adenomas, and then tubular villus, and then villus were the villains, you know, the worst one. <laughs> I don't remember anybody ever mentioning sessile serrated polyps or anything like that. So what about you, Vikram? How has your growth as a mentee and mentor traversed as you've learned and moved around and, and gained more? It's really interesting, you know, and this has actually given me an opportunity to think this through, Lisa. So thank you for this invitation in general, because one seldom thinks of these things in concrete terms, right? And I was trying to think back. I mean, perhaps this is not a confession I should make, but I've really never had a single mentor, right? I've seen a lot of people have like a concrete mentor. They mock this person as a mentor. And uh, there is this very significant relationship between the two. And that relationship goes in this mentor-mentee direction for extended periods of time. I've seen relationships that go very, very well. 
But often in large academic centers, I've seen that sometimes they don't go as smoothly as one would expect, right? So there are challenges as the mentee sort of starts out or may perhaps outpaces the mentor. To me, it's a more of a flexible relationship. And I, I sort of hesitate in putting labels, you know, here's my mentor and here's my mentee. I, you know, th- that sort of relationship is always there, whatever name you want to put on it. But I agree without giving it that sort of language or formalizing it, you don't think about it much. One thing I do appreciate is that both where I worked before this at Rochester and here at, at BI, we have formal mentoring relationships with other faculty members. So I am both a mentor and a mentee to other faculty in the system here. So I, I kind of have to think about it in that sense. And, you know, I appreciate that. And then, you know, USCAP has their mentoring academy as well. So another instance of making sure it happens, basically. Oh, I, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Is there something like that at MGH, Brickham? A formal relationship, yeah. For faculty? For uh, faculty, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Although I haven't met my advisor in uh, 10 years, so. <laughs> I, I, I guess in part, once you're a full professor, no one really wants to talk to you, so. You've made it. You're you're beyond help at that point. (laughs) Don't need it. Don't need it. I certainly have mentees that have now partly become my mentors. So I've known them long enough to see their careers rise, perhaps eclipse me by several generations, several levels. And, you know, the other day I had an issue and I was trying to work through it. And the first person I picked up the phone and talked to was one of my former mentees, now my mentor, right? And the two of us have developed this relationship. We're very comfortable with one another. And that's really what it is. It's sort of a relationship that evolves over time. You know, initially, clearly, I was sort of driving the relationship and the learning was one way and now it is two ways. And you know, talking about mentees, I personally think I've learned more from my mentees than folks have learned from me. I've clearly taught them stuff under the microscope. But outside that, everything from statistics to molecular pathology to you name it, you know, I think I've gained more from them. You know, Lisa, I've sort of worked with you and I've certainly worked with a lot of residents at MGH. So I've traditionally, one of the connections I've always made is through abstracts and papers. And that's just, you know, other people have other ways of connecting with people, at least in the academic world, being where I am here. I have used projects as a means of connecting with people. To my eye, that's been very successful. Clearly, it's a win-win on both sides. But Ultimately, the thing that I think I've gained most out of this are these relationships or bonds that I've developed with trainees. And I think in an academic setting, when you're signing out, it's somewhat, sometimes hard to connect with people because that's, that's a completely different sort of setup, right? You know, you've got to get your cases out. But when you do projects, you connect at a completely different level. And I think, obviously, like, like Raul here, I think one of the joys of working in an academic setup is that there are new people that come in every year. And, you know, you get to see these people. You get to see them grow. But this is, this is another interesting 
perhaps a little more formal in terms of uh, mentor-mentee relationship. And it is the pathologists that I have brought in from India. So I don't know whether you guys know, I'm part of this larger biodiscovery lab where we do everything from sequencing to immunohistochemistry to in-situ hybridization. So it's a full-fledged lab in the cancer center. And we've always had somebody come over from India. Typically, these are pathologists. Some of them are medical students. You know, that relationship is much more consistent because they are here every day. I connect with them on a weekly basis, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, because it is a closer relationship, I found more joy in that relationship. And many of them, and we've been doing this for about, I think, 10 years now. We have at least six or seven of these people who have come through our lab, gone on to do residencies, and then go on to find careers in in academic pathology. Become your new mentee mentors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've really enjoyed that relationship as well, watching these people evolve, you know, when they come from India to... Dr. Deshwani mentioned all the projects and papers and stuff. And I know we have Dr. Gonzalez, several that had successes so far. And we have, I think, twice as many probably uh, in the works. But uh, that's one way you connect. And I, I remember once I asked you, how many other people like, you know, me, like trainees, or do you have these ongoing things? And the number was just something like astronomical. Can you uh, touch on how you kind of keep these things straight and, and how you, because uh, we have a kind of a informal kind of mentoring uh, relationship with like work. And then I'll ask you, you know, like I got a job interview and you were one of the first emails I sent to get advice on that and stuff. Sure. So Vicar mentioned that's one of the benefits of being in an academic center. One of our jobs is to teach. And I think part of teaching is serving as a mentor and, you know, the relationship can be whatever you want it to be or whatever you can make of it. But I have really enjoyed the aspect of being able to foster academic interests in our trainees. You asked me how I keep it all straight. And uh, the short version is I have a big Excel spreadsheet with uh, what I'm working on with everyone. And actually, it's kind of nice. Harvard Medical School has a standard CV template that they require us to use. And there's actually a section on people you have mentored and what you have accomplished with them. So, you know, it's a long list of this person was my fellow a couple of years ago. I have these papers with them. Now they're in attending in such and such place. And it even trickles down to, you know, I did this one project with one person and it was an abstract and never quite made it to the paper for whatever reason, but they're still on the list. And it's very important to me if someone comes to me wanting to work together, that I do whatever I can to make that succeed. If someone comes to me and says, I'm interested in GI, I would like to do a research project. Even if they come to me, and this this is not infrequent with residents, and I wouldn't expect them to have a fully formed project in mind because you're still in the training and learning phase of your career. But if they come to me and say, I want a GI project, do you have a GI project I can do? I really want to be able to come up with something. You know, I have a list of a couple of projects that I could theoretically work on that I, you know, I haven't done a ton of groundwork, but it's sort of a, a potential pool. And if someone comes to me and says, I want a project, I can say, here are three or four things I've got kind of percolating. Does one of these grab you? And of course, if they say no to all of those, then we can keep working. And I have had occasions where even if they came to me, ultimately things didn't click, but I think it behooves you to at least try. I also think that perhaps by virtue of doing this sort of thing and having already had the track record of several publications, people tend to seek 
me out. I mean, I remember in residency, the first pathologist I ever did a project with was Cynthia Cohen. And she was just known as the person who always had a million projects going on. And the residents knew, oh, you want to do research and you don't know what the heck you're doing? Go to Dr. Cohen. She'll hook you up. And she did. And I got a couple of great papers with her and I, I tried to you know, carry it forward. And I, I think I do have that reputation, but I think I've partly developed that by being able to say, yes, I have this project that we can work on together. Let's do it. That's so interesting. I feel like your uh, counterpart here would be Vikram. Vikram always has a million new projects <laughs> on hand. And I remember either my first or second year of residency, the month before USCAP, he just came into the resident room and started <laughs> asking people, everyone gets a project. Here's a project. Here's a project. You're, you're the Oprah of uh, <laughs> that, that year was particularly interesting because I walked up and down and there were actually a couple of residents who actually turned me down. Can you believe it? <laughs> They've had, they had other projects in mind. They don't know what but, they're missing. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. I know, I know. But what and is now it? you're doing it on Twitter. I mean, <laughs> I, pretty frequently now we're seeing like, any of this case or we're doing this or that so. yeah, yeah and that's that's good as a great place to reach out for cases that we're, we're doing a study right now adam right mm-hmm. you, you uh and raul are doing i took you up on one of those uh opportunities. Yeah, yeah yeah i think that's going <laughs> to be a great series but sort of reminds me you know i've done a lot of projects with residents right some of them have gone and finished up as papers some of them have died as abstracts one of the challenges uh, when you start working with residents, you'll find is they have a limited bandwidth and you've got to understand that they do have a limited bandwidth. I think, you know, you make unreasonable expectations, that relationship and that project is going to go nowhere. Clearly their clinical work, and, and I always remind them that their clinical and service work comes first, this comes second. And if you cannot do it, I have no problems with that. Right. If you can't complete a task, then, you know, it is because you've got other things in life to do. There's clearly some residents who do a lot more, some residents who do a lot less. But in general, you know, I think like Raul, I think you have to give residents, you cannot give them an open-ended project, right? It has to be a very discrete project that they can put together in a year or so. I don't know how other people do this, but I certainly put my shoulder to the wheel. So... I mean, Lisa and I did a project together, and I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Lisa, you know, I did as much work as Lisa does. And I, I, I do go to Orange Theory, but between Orange Theory classes, <laughs> I, I do do a fair amount of the background work. And it is primarily with the understanding that I right now in my, you know, I'm in a phase in my career where I have a lot more time and a lot more experience. So often when I write a paper, I'll give a resident almost a, a skeleton, sometimes more than a skeleton of a paper. I'll write it out, but I'll remind them that, look, that's not the be all and end all. You've got to build upon this. And some, some of them do, some of them don't. And so over the last 15 years or so, I've had the whole spectrum of folks writing the whole paper and knocking my door down, asking me if I'm done to folks who have completely forgotten that the project even existed. I've had the exact same experience and the exact same spectrum of projects working out or not working out. I do think that what you just described kind of as a research relationship with people absolutely applies in many ways to a mentor-mentee relationship. One aspect is that it is definitely a two-way street 
if you are willing to be someone's mentor. And again, sometimes it's a formal construct and sometimes it's more informal. But I think as a mentor, you need to be willing to put in the work. It's not just a situation where the mentee comes to you with all the questions and you answer their questions. That alone is not sufficient to constitute, I think, a valuable mentor-mentee relationship. It needs to be, if not 50-50, then 60-40, 70-30, certainly not 99-1 in terms of how it's divided. And then one thing that I always have to remind myself, both when I'm mentoring people or being a mentee, and also with research projects, is that other people have not had the same experiences and may not have the same strengths or the same weaknesses that you have. I think early in my career, when I would bring residents in on projects, I made the mistake of having to be a little too open-ended. I'd say, you know, here's the question, here's some papers, here's what you're looking at, come back to me with your data. And, you know, these are people who are still learning how to be pathologists. If I say, you know, record these five histologic features for these 100 cases, they might not even know what some of these histologic features are, let alone how to distinguish them. That's a lesson that I've learned the hard way. And I apologize to some of the people I worked with early in my career. But whenever I'm working with someone in a mentor-mentee capacity, I try to put myself in their shoes and see, okay, this situation or this problem that they're describing, what does it look like from their eyes? And what does it look like from my eyes? And you know, how can I meld those two and offer advice based on that? I think it's really refreshing to hear both of you say that because I've definitely had experiences early on in my training where I've worked with people on research projects that they sort of left it more open-ended for me and I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I felt I felt really silly or stupid almost because I wasn't sure how to get started. I just had a tray of slides on my desk and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I felt almost embarrassed to go back to them and say, sorry, can you explain to me all over again what exactly it is that you want me to get started on? And so I think it's really nice that as you've gotten more experience that you've been able to put yourself in the shoes of new trainees. Maybe it's just a rite of passage, but uh, (laughs) perhaps it shouldn't be. Believe me, you know, I I didn't get here overnight. It's taken me 15 (laughs) days to get here. And and my sense is that I, I you know I've gotten so good now at you know writing the first draft and I can write it so quickly, but it's so much easier for me to put stuff down on paper. I think for trainees, particularly with little or no experience, you almost I think it's the writer's block, right? You don't know where to start. What do I put down on a paper? And I found this approach pretty helpful. If you can create an outline, right? And in fact, I was doing a recent paper with someone and I said, paragraph one of the discussion is this, paragraph two is this, paragraph three is this. And we got the ball rolling and we got out of paper a, a lot, lot faster because of laying out a skeleton. But not everyone does it that way. I think everyone has their own style. Dr. Gonzalez, I know I'll put a plug in for you. You have a paper with Dr. Zhang and Fine. I think others about bringing a project to fruition with a a trainee, right? Absolutely. It was published in archives last year, I believe, but my co-authors and I had recognized some of these same problems. A lot of pathology residents just get offered a project or asked to do a project, but they never get trained on how to do a project. You know, if you, if you have a PhD, I think some aspect of the PhD education is learning how to do that. But as someone who doesn't have one, I had to kind of learn it 
as I went. And again, the hard way, making plenty of mistakes along the way. So we felt it would be a good idea to have this reference, not just for residents and fellows putting a project together, but maybe attendings who are newly finding themselves in the role of a senior author driving the project. Basically just a guide on how to get things done in a way that makes sense to everyone, doesn't let things fall through the cracks, and keeps that relationship going. I have honestly found it helpful. I've referred back to the thing that we wrote together since then, and I hope that other people find it helpful as well. And I really need to always remember whenever I start working with a resident that I haven't worked with before to say, uh, you know, here's a resident for you on how to do this. And Adam and uh, Raul, I've read that piece and it's terrific, may I say. I think anyone, any pathology resident starting up a project, I think must read that. It is a very helpful resource. Thank you. I'm actually going to print it out and hand it to every resident I do a project with. You can hand it out <laughs> along with the offer of a project. Exactly. <laughs> like, who wants the project? Go. Here's your paper. Here's the how-to blueprint. Uh, <laughs> you can give it all to the new PGY1s when they start, yeah. you know, in a month or so. Just have it in their welcome <laughs> packet. Just, just, just <laughs> give them a project. Don't ask. Just give. That's I'm not kidding. overwhelming at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the, the other interesting thing about a project it helps you learn the language of a pathologist, right? I think I've always seen that when I write something and I write a paper, my pathology reports tend to be more distinguished, if you will. And so for a pathology resident, I think you may say to yourself, oh, I'm going to go into community practice. I have no interest in writing a project. Who do I show my CV to, right? And I think that's the wrong approach. I think you know, I'm putting a plug-in for projects here. <laughs> I, I think it helps you think through pathology, learn the language of a pathologist. We, we have a fair number of MD-PhDs, and I have been able to convince a couple of them, but not too many of them. But I think there is value in writing these anatomic pathology-type projects, other than the fact that you can list it in your CV. I think there's a fair amount of learning that happens. Now, I, I don't know what you guys think, but it certainly helped me. I mean, to tell you the truth, because I didn't have a single mentor, it, it may just be my personality that I like to learn largely on my own. So I don't know whether you can see you know, hundreds of slides behind me here, but every time I've run into a problem, right? So say I, I was so frustrated by the whole issue of Barrett's dysplasia, the more senior people would debate among themselves, this is dysplasia and this is not. And so I decided I'm going to try and figure this out. And that's when I pulled out every Barrett's related case at Mass General, worked through them, followed them up. And that is how I've learned enormously about Barrett's dysplasia. Take a collection of cases, study them, and believe me, you'll be a better pathologist than trying to read a, a review or a book chapter. You know, it, it gets you much further than reading a review unless the review is written by Lisa. <laughs> or Adam. <laughs> or Adam. <laughs> we'll share the links uh, with the podcast later on for those. <laughs> <laughs> Including Raul's paper about how to write a paper or how to work on a project. Yeah, that's an awesome resource. Well, I remember <laughs> you've all seen that uh, recent XKCD comic about like types of research papers. Oh, and, yeah. And, and I love one it. of them, the headline was like, <laughs> everyone else is bad at doing research. Here's why. And I'm like, oh, I wrote that paper. <laughs> <laughs> That comic really hit home for me, especially the pathology one. Yeah, <laughs> it's all true. 
and also to to go back to something Virko mentioned earlier, I do think as a trainee, it makes us feel like we're in a different position when we're working on a research project than when we're across from the scope at sign out, because at least before you're a fellow where you have a little more responsibility when you're a resident, I think you always feel like you're in, there's always uh, this big power dynamic and you always feel like you're not in control of the situation and you're always at the mercy of your attending essentially. And you feel less like a colleague and collaborator and more of just like someone working for someone else, I think, to some degree. And when you actually get to work with them on a project, as Vikram mentioned, you have you develop a much more personal relationship and you feel like you're working together towards something that you're actually creating together. And so as trainees, you feel at least I have felt more involved and more interested in what I'm doing. Just said, Lisa, really hit home, you know. The project takes the power dynamic hurdle down. Because at sign out, it, it really is, you know, that power dynamics is, is at play. And it's, it's hard to develop a relationship in, in that scenario. You really hit it on the head, you know. I'm glad you said that. That's how, that's how I feel <laughs> about yeah, it. Yeah. I've never heard anyone articulate that. And Actually, it's, it's interesting as an attending, I always view trainees as my uh, colleagues, because whether you like it or not, they will be our colleagues in three or four years time, right? <laughs> and it took me some time to come to grips with that part of the equation. So, But nevertheless, there is a power dynamic at play. And uh, one tends to forget that there is a power dynamic as an attending. I, I, I should speak for myself. I sometimes forget those hurdles exist, and it's important to remember them. The further you get away from training, the harder it is to put yourself in a resident's shoes. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm still trying to, whenever I'm working with residents, even as a fellow, I try really hard to remember what it felt like to start out and how hard yeah. it was for them, how hard it was to have to look at all these cases after grossing for so long. It's completely right. different than what I do now. See, I can't remember that. <laughs> it's too long now. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting is even now, I'm sure I have this terrible case of imposter syndrome, but when you tweeted yesterday about our review and referred to me as your colleague, I had a moment where I was like, huh, I guess I am your colleague, but I yes, always have thought of myself right. as your fellow. And that came so naturally to me, you know, it, that's how I think, right? Well, thank you. you know, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, then I'll be sure not to tweet, here's a paper I did with my subordinate, Adam Booth. <laughs> <laughs> you, you still got me for a few more weeks. So, yeah. <laughs> you are a colleague, my friend. Well, thank you. I felt like you've always treated me that way. So I appreciate that, especially if we worked on projects and then even, you know, double scoping and those. I can see definitely what, how Lisa mentions that kind of hierarchical power dynamic there on the one hand, and how the research projects do kind of bring things more to an even plane as you grow or build something together like the paper. That's a really, really great way to say it. I agree. I know we've spent too much time on this, but one last thing, you know, as a mentor, I feel very responsible if, you know, we've gotten, we've moved a project forward, we've put in all the work. I feel very responsible for that project, right? And, you know, the thing that I feel most rejections are a part of life, right? So we've all, <laughs> I've had my share of rejections over the years, but I feel particularly let down when I let down a project 
where the resident is the is, is the lead author on. So I, I think the stakes are higher to me. If it, if, if it was all my paper, then I don't feel as hurt. I, I really do feel very hurt when the resident is the lead author and I'm the last author. So it's that sense of response. It, 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 it increases the stakes. And so when that rejection letter comes along, I regret to inform you. <laughs> and it's a resident-related project. I, f- I feel terrible about it. And that's something, I don't know whether everyone feels the same, but... I've lived with this for some time, and I just wanted to say it to someone. <laughs> I, feel, I, I feel terrible about it. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Even just this year, Adam and I working together, we've had some successes and some things that I would not qualify. I would not call successes, at least not yet. And <laughs> I, I, I have felt bad that we couldn't raise our batting average for the year. But uh, we'll keep trying. We'll keep swinging. Well, we had one, you know, I think it's a great point you mentioned. We, we had one H. pylori paper. It took a few tries, you know, we tweaked it and changed it and but then finally got it in. But I know kind of to Vikram's point, I could tell you were always very disappointed. Of course, we got it in eventually, but I, I could tell you felt that way, that responsibility. All right. As we're getting to the end of our episode, let's finish with what are the biggest game changers that you've seen in the field since you've been in practice? Well, I'd love to hear Vikram's opinion on this because he has been doing this a little longer than I have. I think the two biggest game changers since I've started pathology, these are both kind of obvious answers, but I'll say them anyway. Number one, I do think molecular has really been a game changer in a lot of ways. Maybe not for GI as much as other fields, but uh, you know, when I was starting, really there was just MSI and that was about it for colon cancers. And now there's so much more stuff going on. I really do have to think about molecular information almost every day. I do not consider myself a molecular pathologist, but I've had to become conversant with the language just to get through my daily stack. And then the second thing is absolutely Twitter and social media. For all of its faults, it's definitely a wonderful way to connect with people, a wonderful way to keep up to date on the latest things people are doing, the latest research projects, even as we've discussed fostering research collaborations, because these days no one can operate in a vacuum. And having those connections really improves projects, improves working relationships, and really just improves the experience I have of being a pathologist. Yeah, I, I'd agree with molecular pathology and the fact that it hasn't made a huge impact on GI pathology. In fact, the first true targeted therapy, I don't know whether you guys know this, that the first true targeted therapy that was approved in GI pathology, and I hope I'm getting this right, is the FGFR2 inhibitor for cholangiocarcinoma, right? So there, there's a mutation that you specifically target. And other than that, You know, molecular pathology, in spite of the fact that it has changed a lot of things, it hasn't moved sequencing, you know, all this large-scale sequencing hasn't moved GI pathology as much as I think many people would have hoped. You know, again, I'm not a molecular pathologist, but to me, you know, molecular pathology is just another tool. The other day on Twitter, talking about Twitter, I asked folks if anyone had done an electron microscopy fellowship. And there were a couple of people that raised their hands. And I brought that up simply because I think these are tools. And, and you know, it's for, I think the, the last 10 or 15 years was that molecular pathology era. And again, I'm coming to you from a non-molecular pathologist perspective, rather an anatomic pathologist perspective. 
I think the thing that's going to change everything we do is machine learning and these algorithms that are being developed. I am a true believer that these slides can be read by a machine. I don't think it's going to replace what we do, but it's going to completely change the way we do things. So we're going to have these aids where I suspect will be the final arbitrators here. But it'll mean that you're going to require fewer pathologists in general. You're going to end up becoming a much better pathologist because of these algorithms, but it's certainly not going to replace us. I can see a time where all of the adenomas go through this algorithm and um, perhaps a great proportion of them are never seen. So this, this is going to be a huge game changer. Just given the few projects I've been involved with, I just think this is going to come a lot sooner than we think. I have no idea what the timelines really are, but this is going to completely going to open up a specialty to a completely new way of practicing it. I guess I'm old enough, so I, I suspect it's not going to completely change the way I do things. But I do wonder, Lisa and Adam, you know, for your careers, my prediction is in 15 years' time, we're going to be doing things very, very differently. I, I agree. And I, I'm kind of hopeful for that future as well, just because I feel like it will lead to better patient care overall. Like, you know, I'm also a cytopathology fellow, and all of our pap smears are already screened mm -hmm. by a machine. And so most of the negative paps are already essentially screened out before it reaches the desk of a cytopathologist. And so like Vikram said, I can also envision a future where some routine biopsies like tubular adenoma or something like that, like you mentioned, findings can be screened out without being looked at by a pathologist one day. Definitely. I think that and then and the different algorithms that can be put in place to distribute cases and like if it automatically flags it, they can even just use the EMR to just make sure it, MSI is ordered. And then if some interpretation gets put in that it needs to go for BRAF testing or hypermethylation testing, there's the programming that can do that and know that. Like if you enter that diagnosis, then it needs to order this and you have all these, these different routes and it can learn. And I think it's going to be exciting. I'm waiting for the key 67 counter. I feel like someone should be able to make please, this now. <laughs> An algorithm should be able to find a hot spot of brown dots and just count the percentage. It's the positive. shade of brown dots and the shape. <laughs> Let me know when you find it. I will, I will purchase that software. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for your time. Thank you both for joining us today. And it was a, a real pleasure getting to chat with you and get to know you both a little bit more. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you all. Yeah, great. This was great. Good talk. A lot of fun. Well, that was just a fantastic discussion from everyone. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us on the show and for sharing all your experiences and pearls of wisdom. And PathPod listeners, thank you all for joining us today. I know I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next time. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. 
As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Pathpod.